I'm Dick Alstrom, and you're listening to Vaccine Questions, brought to you by the Royal Irish Academy Life and Medical Sciences Committee. Hello, you're very welcome to our latest edition of Vaccine Questions. Our distinguished guest today is bioethicist Professor Siobhan O'Sullivan. She's the Chief Bioethics Officer in the Department of Health and is a member of the government's National Public Health Emergency Team, known as NEFIT. Siobhan, I think we really have to have some kind of explanation of what bioethics actually means and what kind of principles or assumptions underlie it. What is, what, you know, somebody who's never heard of this before, what would you say to them? Thanks, Dick. And, and I'm really delighted to be able to join you to talk today about bioethics and, and about the role that bioethics has played in, in the pandemic so far. So I suppose if, if you'll allow me, I introduce myself a little bit. My background is actually in translational medicine and research. But I made the switch to ethics about 20 years ago and have worked in the field ever since. And I suppose that brings us to the question of what is actually ethics. And I think most people instinctively know what bioethics is, but perhaps it's the term that's more esoteric. So ethics is this kind of field of study. It's a discipline that basically looks at what the right thing to do is. What ought we do in a particular situation? What's a good way to live our lives? Um, what's worthwhile? What are our obligations to each other? Who's responsible? For what? To whom? All those kind of questions. And then bioethics is, I suppose, a sub-division uh, of that field that applies all of those kind of questions, but in the context of healthcare and medicine. So actually, as I mentioned, I think most people really will know what bioethics is because they're questions that come up on an everyday basis. They're really things that matter very deeply to us, things about how we're born, how we live, how we die. So really fundamental questions. And I suppose bioethics looks at these questions from a multidisciplinary perspective. And I think that's a particular strength of the field. So you have healthcare professionals, lawyers, philosophers, ethicists, theologians, policymakers, all getting into a room together and saying, well, okay, if we've got these particular challenging issues around, you know, how do we pay for innovative medicine? Who gets access to an organ for transplantation? How much say do we give children in, in, in decision-making, in medical decision-making? All of those kind of questions really are about bioethics. And so I think it's really something that resonates quite a lot with people, even if they don't know that they're talking about bioethical issues. They're the kind of things that lots of people talk about every day to each other. Yeah, it makes for great debates and uh, fractious carry on, I suppose, too, to a certain extent. So what you're saying generally is that bioethics is, yeah, although at the moment we're right in the midst of a big deal bioethical issue related to the pandemic, you don't have to have a crisis in order to apply its, its value? Oh, I would strongly um, say that, you know, bioethics is, is, is obviously integral to this, to this whole situation, but I think it is very fundamentally about basic questions in healthcare. And they're the kind of questions we need to be asking ourselves on a daily basis. Mm. So in fact, you know, bioethics is, is important in a crisis situation, but I think its real value is by is really embedding that kind of thought process or that kind of dialogue into everyday decision making around uh, clinical decision making and then policy decision making around how we structure and deliver healthcare in this country and globally. I must say I was surprised um, when I realized then 
that bioethics has been at the core of the government's response to COVID-19 from as early as April 2020. And um, that's when they asked you to put together, NEVIT asked you to put together a bioethical framework. What's this for? What is it doing? Yeah, I mean, many of your listeners will be very familiar with this concept of we need to follow the science. And that's been the mm-hmm. mantra, I think, um, that has very much characterized this pandemic. And that is absolutely true. I mean, and, and I think NEFET has always been um, guided very much by the evidence. But I think you can't simply leave it at that. And I think, you know, a lot of the decisions that have been made um, have so fundamentally touched on people's lives and livelihoods, on their civil liberties, that, you know, it has to be a broader perspective that's brought to bear. So when we talk about the science, and much of the science is also uncertain, which is another problem with a very novel... It's um, kind of new to virus. us. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, so what has to happen in that context is that you have to bring some values to bear that underpin those decisions. Because you can make lots of different decisions based on the science. We as two scientists can have a very reasonable disagreement about how to interpret data. So I think that's really the important thing, that shared values give you a kind of shared basis for which to make your decisions on. And I think it's really important that the public understand what the values are that are guiding the decisions. And that was the purpose of the ethical framework. So it was to clearly set out what it was that, you know, what the values were, the principles that we were bringing to bear in terms of making those decisions, as I say, that have real and concrete implications for people's lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't do anything more profound than self-incarceration for five months. Exactly. Some of the, It was pretty tough on some people because they just weren't getting out at all. And if you think about older people, for example, who are living in long-term residential care, who may not have had visitors, as you say, many people who, because of a condition that may have made them very vulnerable in terms of COVID, I know people don't like the expression cocooning, but effectively separating themselves from other people. It's been a hugely stressful and lonely time for people. People, you know, losing their jobs, people becoming ill, like really very significant impacts on people's lives. And I think that's why, you know, you can't simply say this is all about the science. It has to be informed about the values, the things we want to protect. Are we being proportionate? Is this the right thing to do? And it's about trying to balance all of those things. Um, And I think, you know, in fairness, Nefet has always been very conscious of this idea of trying to balance the harm that comes from the disease and then the harm that arises as a result of the kind of measures that are being put in place. So I think that that's that's something we've always um, tried to strive to actually balance those things. Bioethics in action can be seen in the idea of vaccination solidarity. I like that term. It's a nice kind of term. Um, Vaccination solidarity. And this emerged during the pandemic. Can you explain what this is? Because people may not have realized they're actually already doing this. Yeah. So much as the much the same as the issue of kind of science, uh, you know, needs we need to follow the science. I think solidarity, which is a kind of concept in philosophy and ethics, is something that's really come to the fore as part of this pandemic. And it's something I've been very keen to defend. I know people became kind of fatigued with it and said, well, actually, we're not all in it together, which is kind of the idea of solidarity. But I think it goes much deeper than that. Solidarity is about, in my view, is about standing up 
and for and beside other people. It's not about me being very empathetic and sympathizing with you, Dick, because, you know, you couldn't get out or you lost a job or you lost a loved one. I mean, of course, that's really important and we all need to do that. But I think solidarity is a much more concrete principle in the sense that it costs us something to show Mm -hmm. solidarity with somebody else. So we recognize each other. We recognize our shared humanity. And I suppose this pandemic has very clearly made it really clear to all of us just how connected we are, both nationally, but also internationally, globally. And we have this interdependence on each other. and, And that's really clear in the context of an infectious disease. But so I think that idea of vaccine solidarity and solidarity more generally, it's not to say that people haven't been differentially affected. Of course they have. You know, some people, as I say, have lost loved ones. Some people have lost livelihoods. You know, it's impacted, I think, on every single Mm -hmm. person, Um, but obviously in different ways and to a different extent. But the idea of solidarity is that we stand up for each other and that we support and help each other through that. And therefore, we have to do different things for different people to recognize that differential effect. Mm -hmm. So in the context of vaccines, I would say that solidarity is shown in two different ways. So nationally, if you take a vaccine, that's really good for you. It will protect you from severe disease, but it will also protect other people around you. And so you are standing up for other people in trying to ensure that as a society, we're all protected because there will be some people who for various reasons either can't or don't wish to take a vaccine. So it's about trying to stand up and and, and do that for each other. And then I think in the wider context, it is very much about global solidarity because, I mean, obviously a lot of the discussion we've had in this country has been around, you know, a very limited supply of vaccines and who would get those vaccines, etc. And that's completely understandable because we're all desperate to, to kind of um, return to some sort of normality. But I suppose what we have to recognise is that so far, I mean, in this country, half our population have received their first dose of vaccine, which is just fantastic. But if you compare that to low and middle income countries, you're talking about about 0.3%. So there will be people in low and middle income countries who will not receive any vaccine before the end of 2023, 2024. And it's that classic idea of, and we hear it a lot now, until everyone is protected, nobody is protected. And not alone is it morally the right thing to do. It is, of course, practically the right thing to do because a pandemic by its nature is global and therefore we have to have a global response. So solidarity is not simply about standing up for people who look like you or are like you, but about taking a much broader perspective and saying, you know, not taking that very narrow concept of solidarity, but expanding that and saying, well, actually, yeah, we are all in this together to different extents, but we're all in it together. And we need to then show solidarity with each other. It's an interesting concept because everyone will have a different contribution to make or be in the position to make some kind of contribution. And it's not just money, it's time, it's effort, it's doing something for somebody that you really didn't have to do before, but now it really would be a help to your mind. You know, I can I can see that you can see the value of it. Self-preservation. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what I I I really have reflected quite a lot on that during the pandemic. So in the early days, um, during sort of the first wave of the pandemic and then the first lockdown, you know, it was really heartening to to read all those stories about, you know, the kind of 
the way community came together and the way people, you know, really reached out to other people and helped and did what they could. And then we heard a lot less of that as time went on. But I'm absolutely convinced and I see it in, in my own family, in my own community. People continue to do that, maybe more quietly. And it was discussed maybe less in, in terms of the media. But I think people continued to do that because we recognise the struggles people were going through. And I, and I think that's the one thing. So, you know, when we talk about solidarity as a sort of philosophical concept and, you know, if you get philosophers into the room, there are books written about, you know, how one should interpret solidarity. But I actually think, you know, as a country, we can be quite proud of how we actually demonstrated that solidarity to each other. So I think people were, you know, in the beginning when everyone was learning to bake sourdough bread, I missed that one, even though I love sourdough bread. It's, again, it's a, it's a lovely idea and you want to see more of that persisting afterwards, I suppose. I think that concept of solidarity is just so important. It's not something that's limited to, as you say, an emergency situation or a pandemic. It's actually something that we need to embed into our institutional structures, into our healthcare system as a whole. I think that's just so important. For me, when I sit down and reflect on it all, I mean, I'm as desperate as the next person to get back to, to normal, to be able to hug somebody again outside mm. my immediate family. I mean, all of that. But I really hope we don't squander these lessons. And they've been hard lessons, but that we don't squander them and that we learn and build and that we retain that that solidarity, but that kindness, because I think kindness is really important and that we somehow build on those things for the future. Such a simple saying, a little bit of kindness <laughs> goes a long way. Goes a long way. Bioethics holds that one person is not more important than the next. But this doesn't mean that all people are treated the same way. Now, again, like Tishi and politicians and important business people may feel that they should be first in the queue, but really it's not, it's not the case. And as well as that, yeah. it may not be an indicator of what the person will receive as treatment. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty is that by virtue of a queue, somebody has to be at the top and somebody has to be in the middle and somebody has to be at the end of the queue. I mean, that's how it works. And I think that's what's been challenging about this pandemic. Um, right from the beginning, when we talked about who should have access to, for example, critical care, when we saw those scenes from Italy and, you know, we knew that that because of the characteristics of this particular virus, that people would need access to critical care. And then there was the discussion about, you know, well, if we become overwhelmed, how do we decide who gets access to critical care? And that went all the way through this idea of how do we allocate scarce resources? And that went all the way through to, well, now we have, thankfully, vaccines. But, you know, there's going to be a global shortage of these vaccines. So we can't give everybody a vaccine that might want one immediately, although that was obviously the, the, the end game. Um, so how do we, in that interim period, decide who needs to get the vaccine first? And that's a very value-laden question. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know... What, what we did in that context was because um, not alone did we have the ethical framework for decision making, which, as you said, was published right at the beginning. But as soon as we started to plan for, for a vaccination campaign um, and as soon as we knew that vaccines would be coming online, we had to think very seriously about those kind of questions. And so we also actually devised a, a framework for how we would think through those questions in terms of who should get priority. And I mean, obviously, there were a number of, of clinical questions, scientific questions, and, and our National Immunization Advisory Committee is, is completely expert in all of that. And so they were looking at, well, where is the risk? 
So who are the people who are most at risk? Who's most vulnerable from this disease? Because, of course, all of us are vulnerable, depending upon the context. And so the question was here, what, what do we need to protect here? And so those decisions had to be made. And, and then from that flowed, well, look, what, what can guide those decisions? So the science and the evidence can guide who's going to get sickest, et cetera. But, you know, things like, for example, so one of the guiding principles was moral equality. So exactly what you've referred to. Nobody's more important than anybody else. Um, and that was exactly in terms of our guidance around access to critical care. It was the same thing, just because of who you are, or, or, or what your health status is, or what age you are, that does not dictate, you know, necessarily that you should or shouldn't receive access to something. So I think it's really important that, you know, you start from there, that everybody is equal, and therefore, you know, deserves equal treatment. But I think then, and this is the, my students hate this, uh, the kind of differentiation between equality and equity. And those are two different things. So equity recognizes that not everybody is starting from the same place. And as I say, in terms of, for example, um, prioritization for COVID vaccines, you recognize there are some people who are going to be much worse off should they contract the virus. And, and it's about, therefore, protecting those people first. So equity really is about trying to level the playing field to a certain extent. And that means giving additional support to some people. And that's effectively what we have to do in this situation. So we went to try and, and actually protect those first who were most vulnerable from really serious disease if they caught this. And then protect our healthcare workers who were at really serious risk because they were taking care of the rest of us and had obviously significant exposure to this virus to try and protect them so they could continue to do that. I think an example of the past few ideas we've been talking about is whether to make COVID vaccination mandatory or optional. High vaccination rates are needed to achieve herd immunity, a community good. Yet if a person exercises their right to say no, then this may jeopardize the health benefit arising from this public good. What do you make of that? Which way do you jump? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. And I think there are arguments on both sides of that. And we ethicists are great for, for on the one hand and on the other. <laughs> I think that, you know, clearly, if someone who is offered a vaccine has to make the decision for themselves about whether they wish to accept that vaccine or not. And in medical ethics, we're very keen on this idea of personal autonomy, that somebody be, is informed about the benefits, the risks, etc., and then that they make a decision for themselves without any kind of influence from anybody else, without any coercion, and they come to that decision themselves. And that's hugely important because as an individual, you get to decide what happens with your own bodily integrity. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, there is an argument that you don't interfere with people's autonomy and bodily integrity, and that is their choice to make. Vaccines, though, however, as you said, are a good example of where that decision not only affects you personally, but affects people around you. And there is a, a sort of public good in respect of, of taking a vaccine, and that's why we encourage people to do that. But in public health ethics, there's a principle known as the least restrictive principle, right? Which is this idea that you should try to the greatest extent possible to do the thing which restricts people's liberties or autonomy as much as possible before you go in in a very heavy handed way and make something mandatory. And that's a really well established principle. So I think what's interesting about mandatory vaccination is 
that many people would say, and this would be my own view, that, that you have to adhere to that principle of least restrictive. So if it turns out, and, and I mean, there are countries where, where this may very well be the case. I mean, we're really lucky in Ireland that there seems to be a very high uptake in terms of the vaccine. But for those where countries where they have significant amounts of vaccine hesitancy that may well affect their ability to protect the entire population, they have to consider that the idea of mandatory vaccination and thereby you are curtailing people's rights. But if that is the only way to achieve that greater public good, ethically, that may well be defensible. But I think what you have to do is, and I think it's an interesting, we talk about this ladder of intervention in public health. So what you do is you try and do the least restrictive thing first. So if you think it's because perhaps there's vaccine hesitancy, you know, that would be useful to actually engage with people, try and find out what their concerns are, try and enter into a dialogue with them around that. Very often you will see that that will, for many people, that will be enough and they will say, fine, I'll I'll take a vaccine. So I think you need to start there and move along the intervention ladder and go higher as, as, as the situation calls for it. But again, it's, it's like lots of things in ethics. It's about balancing those individual rights against collective societal rights. And that's a delicate balance very often to achieve. So you're always trying to be proportionate in what you're doing. I think similar complexity arises in arguments over whether to provide those who are fully vaccinated with a stamp in a passport or a card or some marker to show that they've had all of their jabs. The only problem is this is not a straightforward issue. Can you explain? I mean, it's ideas like, you know, taking away uh, rights that people used to have or, you know, it, it's it's not a really it's not a simple question at all. No, gosh, no, it's not. And and I think, you know, it's been really interesting working on vaccines, just how, you know, it's the gift that keeps giving from the ethics perspective. So we started off with questions around oh, who would we prioritize? for vaccines, vaccines, and then to much more complex questions that NIAC had to deal with. And, and, and I sit on that group as well and, and give ethics advice there in terms of balance of risk and benefit in respect of various vaccines. And so really, really complex issues, right down to now that everybody, hopefully in, in the next period of time, will, will be vaccinated about, you know, what that buys you to a certain extent in society. So, and that's a very active discussion that's going on both in Europe and beyond, because for a while yet, there will be a group of people who are fully vaccinated and those who are not vaccinated. And therefore, there is this this idea that, you know, and, and, and it's again, it's kind of back to this least restrictive principle that, you know, if a person is fully vaccinated, they're protected, not 100%, because it's not, you know, the, the um, efficacy of no vaccine. It doesn't yet, work that way. Like yeah. that. But you are protected. And you're probably posing less of a risk in terms of transmitting the virus to other people. So if that's the case, how can I step in and say to you, well, you can't go here or you can't meet this person or, you know, how how can I legitimately interfere with your rights? But by the Mm -hmm. same token, so then you would say, okay, well, if somebody is vaccinated, then you have to be able to restore those rights to that individual. But then the flip side of that is that as long as we have a segment of the population who will not be fully vaccinated. And Ireland, along with almost all other countries in the world, have adopted a vaccination policy where we have vaccinated our older persons first. And that's absolutely based on this, you know, now very well-established evidence 
that the risk for those who are older is much greater from a bad outcome if you actually contract this virus. So that means that lots of our younger people will be the last to be vaccinated. So the issue then is, so do we say, okay, well, we're going to restore rights to one portion of the population, but we're going to continue to curtail the rights of another part of the population. And that means effectively this kind of fragmentary restoration of rights Really, I think, you know, many people worry that it's going to have an impact on social cohesion. Like if I see that everybody else can do what they want, well, why should I stick with this public health advice? I'm just going to meet my friends at the weekend. (laughs) And it becomes very difficult then to kind of, you know, maintain what has been, as I say, the hallmark of this entire pandemic response, which Mm -hmm. is solidarity at its core. So I think that's problematic. Other people have pointed, and the ethics literature is, is, is replete with with worries around this stuff, that it can actually lead to things like discrimination or stigmatization. It's one thing that I might not be able to get into the hairdressers if if I don't have my vaccine passport. But if it means that I can't access education, if I can't go to school, if I can't, you know, go to university, if I can't go to my place of work, If my prospective employer says, well, I've got Dick who's fully vaccinated in front of me and Siobhan who isn't, do you know what? I'll give Dick the job. Mm -hmm. There's all of those issues uh, that I think we would have to think really carefully about as a society. And then there's the other issue of privacy, which is, you know, are we moving? There's lots of people who worry that we're kind of moving to a sort of digital health surveillance where, you know, we'll want to know lots of things about about people and their health status in the future, and that that may entitle them or indeed bar them from certain things. And I think those are all concerns that we really do need to take on board and think about really carefully when we're, mm-hmm. when we're, when we're talking about this. Looking a bit more outwards, COVID-19 is affecting all parts of the world, but not all countries have equal access to vaccines. Do you think wealthier countries should automatically have a moral responsibility to support weaker or less well-off countries in the world. How should we respond to that whole issue? Yeah, look, I mean, it's back to the the issue of global solidarity. And I mean, it's back to this issue of it's the right thing to do, but it's also the practical thing to do. And I think it goes very often when we have this discussion, it's about saying, oh, well, we need to give vaccines to other countries, etc., which of course we do. But it's also about um, a much broader issue of providing and ensuring those those countries actually have the infrastructure to deliver those vaccines, uh, that they have the needle to deliver the vaccine, that they have the trained vaccinators, that there's all of that support in place as well. And I think it's, you know, I mean, most of our vaccination capability is sitting in, in high income countries in terms of being able to manufacture and the expertise that's required to do that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that inevitably gives uh, and those countries an edge in respect of actually procuring vaccine, even though that is clearly a central part in terms of sharing of, of what is, in fact, a very scarce resource, vaccines. I think we do need to think in much broader terms about building capacity. And I think, you know, unfortunately, that takes time. And in an emergency situation, that's difficult. But I think, going back to our early conversation it's about ensuring that we learn the lessons and that we build you know, resilience and that we have future preparedness for what will be the next pandemic. Hopefully when I'm retired, but you know, inevitably there will be one. How has the pandemic been for you? I assume it's long nights and 
lots of pressure and four hours sleep as a, as a, as a normal ration for a day. How has it been? Uh, it, it's been busy, but for lots of people, it's been really busy. You know, I feel privileged, very privileged to be on effort, to be part of, of that decision making, to use my expertise to inform those decisions. So that has been, uh, um, you know, a privilege for me. But, you know, it's also been stressful at times because, and, and I think I speak for myself, but probably a lot of my colleagues on, on NEFED and NIAC and, and all of those advisory bodies, you know, you feel the weight of that responsibility very much. You know, we're making decisions about people's mm. lives. Um, and I'm acutely aware of that. And, and you work as hard as you can to ensure that you have done the best you can, that you thought about everything that you could, that you you know, you've been informed as possible because of the impact that that is having on people's lives. Um, and as you say, it's, it's so profound and significant. And, and I feel the weight of that responsibility very mm. much, hoping that and, and trying to do your very best. And I think, you know, that's been true of all of my colleagues. And it's been, I've been really lucky in the sense that I work with some wonderful people who are terribly supportive and you know when you'd have the bad day like everybody had you know just thought oh I'm just so fed up with this or I'm so you know they leave the bar of chocolate on your desk <laughs> where they come down and say you know what tomorrow will be better and and I think that's really important so I've been lucky in that respect tomorrow is another day huh <laughs> that's it one other thing I, I wanted to ask you about just briefly patent protections Obviously, the companies that develop these vaccines feel that they should they should retain ownership and they'll control manufacture. But it may be that there's manufacturing capacity that's not being used in another country or a poorer country. And with a bit of help, they could actually take the recipe and make vaccines for themselves. You know, how do you jump on that one? That was a it's a kind of an awkward one. You know, they have the right to earn money from their discoveries, but on the other hand, you have a moral right to deny people vaccines as fast as we can get them to them. Yeah, like I think this is a really, as you know, it's a very hot topic at the moment. Uh, a lot of discussion because you have India and South Africa who brought this proposal to the World Trade Organization to suspend patents on uh, COVID vaccines, but also on, on things like PPE or, or drugs that are used to actually treat COVID. And there are, as you say, a number of very complex questions there. And, and I, I would just point out that actually these don't just exist in respect of COVID. They are about all new innovative medicines. The same sort of issues apply. And on the one hand, you would say, yeah, well, if we suspend patents, that means it may be more readily available to more countries. And that's really important, as you say, and morally the right thing to do. The question is, is that the only way to do it? Because, you know, on the other side of that, as you say, people say, well, if we do away with patents, we can stymie innovation. And then if there's no incentive for, for a commercial company or a pharmaceutical company to actually make a drug, then, you know, if they can't recoup the costs of that R&D development, then, you know, we will just stifle innovation. I think that's that's a reasonable argument, but I think we have to be slightly more creative then around, around how we support innovation while ensuring that people can actually get access to all of these new innovative drugs and therapies. The problem, I suppose, really with COVID vaccines, though, is that, again, it comes back to this immediacy problem, which is exactly what you've said. You can take away the patent protection and it's like I'm giving you the recipe for my foolproof brown bread or banana bread or whatever. Soda bread. Exactly. But if you don't, I'll pass that on to you, Dick. Um, but if you don't actually, you know, have the proper tools or utensils to make it, 
if you don't, you know, if I don't give you proper instructions. And if you think about, you know, the mRNA vaccines, you know, the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines, as people probably know them, that's a completely new technology. It has been used, the platform has been used in the past for Ebola, for example. But these are really new vaccines, and there are very few people who actually know how to make them. So, you know, building that capacity is not something that's going to happen overnight. So I think we're going to have to be, you know, certainly something we need to think about in the longer term. But I think in the shorter term, we're going to have to be much more creative in how we support each other to ensure that people can have access to vaccines and that that's done at a global level and in a fair and equitable way. Siobhan, you've been an absolutely wonderful guest. Thank you so much. Many thanks for your insights, enthusiasm and ongoing commitment to tackling COVID-19. Your participation is greatly appreciated. Great having you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Dick. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you'll find previous episodes at ria.ie slash vaccine questions. And if you have a question you'd like me to ask the experts next time, please send it to vaccinequestions at ria.ie along with your name and location. Take care and talk to you next time.